Well, it's uh, good to see you all this morning, whether you're here in person or if you're online. Uh, there was a time earlier this week we weren't really sure that was going to happen, and uh, with Brad out of town, we were uh, working on backup plans, but for those of you who don't know, we spent uh, the last week in Orlando, Florida, and if you've watched the news at all, you can kind of understand what we saw this week. Uh, we learned something about a hurricane when you're not in the immediate danger zone, which we weren't, we were inland and uh, the main eye of the storm passed just south of us a bit, uh, setting through a hurricane in your hotel room is the most boring, life-threatening event you could ever have. <laughs> because literally all we did was look out the window and watch it rain for like two days straight. You know, it's like 70 mile an hour winds and a lot of rain and uh, I, you know, text that to my dad and my brother, and my brother's like, well, we get those same storms here. I said, yeah, ours last 30 minutes. This one has not stopped. It just keeps going and going. But uh, we uh, made it home Friday um, after about eight or nine reschedules of flights. We made it home. We were, we were there for a conference. It got cut short, but we are uh, uh, glad to be here with you. Before we start this morning, though, I would like to take just a moment and, um, and pray for those affected. As of this morning, or as of last night anyway, before I went to bed, uh, I had seen that there are at this point at least 30 people who have lost their lives in this storm. Uh, Hurricane Ian made uh, landfall at Fort Myers, which is about 120 miles southwest of where we were in Orlando. It's, it's down the coast from Tampa. Um, and it made cut, when it made landfall, it was 150 miles an hour 157 is when they call it a Category 5. So it was just barely a Category 4 storm when it made landfall. But uh, at least 30 people have lost their lives. There are still hundreds of people unaccounted for. Tens of thousands of homes have been destroyed. Um, they are estimating over 2 million people are still without power at this point. Their early estimates are that this storm is going to run north of $100 billion worth of damage done, making it one of the costliest storms uh, natural disasters in our nation's history. Um, those who are still there are dealing with spotty internet, spotty cell phone service, no gas at the pumps, um, widespread flooding, just a lot of things going on. And so uh, if you would, before we jump in this morning, I just want to stop and, and if you join me in prayer with, uh, for the people affected. There's hope. There's hope. Right there in Fort Myers. So uh, I know many of you have people that you know down there. I'm going to reference a few that I know here in just a bit as well too. So uh, let's just be praying for all those that, that they would be there. Father, we're so thankful that you are God and that you are good even when things happen. And God, I just pray that you would be with those, with, with the families of those who were lost, who, 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 who were uh, taken, God, but also those who have survived, those who have damaged, God, you would give them this hope, whether that's a few drips of water, whether that's a few trickles of electricity. God, a strong cell phone signal to call somebody, to talk. You would just give them those trickles of hope, God, as they rebuild, knowing this is going to take a while to, to, to rebuild everything. God, we're so grateful that you are, are still with us, but God, we pray you'd be with the people in Cuba the people in Florida, the people in South Carolina, where this main landfall three different times. You would be with them, you would help them, you would heal them. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, question for you this morning as we get ready to jump in. We've been in this series called Ripple Effect the last few weeks looking at 
the, uh, the miracles, we're, we're calling them signs, but the miracles in the Gospel of John and what they still mean in our lives today, what makes moments significant for you? Like, think about this. What, what kind of moments stick out to you that are significant? Probably on either end of the spectrum. They're significant because they were great moments or they're significant because they were bad moments. Like, often just the day-to-day mundane, we don't really... Those don't stand out so much, but what makes moments significant for you? And then kind of the follow-up is what do you do with those moments? Uh, I ask that question because we're coming across uh, a moment in the, in the Bible today, in Scripture today, that is significant. Now, if you look through the Gospels, if you do what's called harmonizing the Gospels, where you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you lay them out side by side and just stretch them out, it's actually kind of a a fun practice to do. It lets you see the differences in the Gospels, but it lets you see the difference in the stories too. But up to this point, if you're reading the chronological story of Jesus, we're about to read the very first story that takes place in all four Gospels. In fact, what's What's significant about this is it's the only story, the only event that takes place in all four Gospels until Jesus strolls into Jerusalem on a donkey a few days before he's put on a cross. That should get your attention. Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, we're going to be in John chapter 6 today talking about what I think might be outside of maybe the the crucifixion, resurrection, and maybe Jesus walking on water that we'll talk about next week. This might be, I think, Jesus' most famous event that, that he does. And it's significant, again, because all four writers talk about this. We said this earlier, there are dozens of, of miracles throughout the Gospels. John wrote his Gospel a few decades after the others. He knew what they had written, and he purposely picked things that they did not but yet he chose to write about this one anyway. So again, the question, what makes a moment truly significant to you? Because we're going to look at that right here in this story. If you've got a Bible, we're in John chapter 6. I'm reading from the NIV today. We've got it on the screens as well, too, if you want to follow along or if you want to follow on your phone or a a device. John chapter 6 just starts like this. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. We'll pause real quick. We have really intentionally stayed within the Gospel of John with this, but I want to just look at the other Gospels really quick because John doesn't mention something that's an important detail here that we read in Matthew and Mark in the section just before Jesus feeding the 5,000, we read about the death of John the Baptist. Uh, He's been executed by uh, King Herod. It's it's really, I'm not going to get into the story. Uh, It's a pretty interesting story to say the least. I would encourage you to read it. It sheds some light on here. Uh, Luke, who probably writes the most chronologically accurate gospel, says just before Jesus went up on this mountainside, his disciples told him about the death of John the Baptist. Jesus was cousins with him. They knew each other well. So Jesus, it says that he was going up on this mountainside because he needed some time to cope with this. File this away. We're going to come back to this here in a little bit. Jesus was trying to get away. He's just, if you read the other gospels, been healing and preaching and doing all these amazing things. He needs a moment to himself. That's why he goes up there, but the crowd sees him and they follow him. Verse 5, it says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? 
He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, uh, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. The exact number here is 200 denarii. Now, a denarius was one day's wages. Uh, So kind of file that away. How much money would you make in 200 days working? Just so you kind of put this in your perspective, when you take weekends out, most of us probably work about 260 days a year. So how much money would you make in three-fourths of your year, basically? That's what Philip is saying here. Philip is answering him in a very interesting way. But Jesus asks him a question for a specific reason. We've, we talked about this last week when Jesus asked the man by the pool, do you, what, what do you want me to do for you? And the guy's like, well, yeah, throw me in the water here so I can get healed. Jesus is asking a question because he's testing Philip. See, I kind of think of it like this. Jesus wants to know, again, how we're going to respond Look at how he asks Philip here. He doesn't ask him, hey, how much money do we have? How much food do we have? He just simply says, where are we going to get it? How are we going to do it? That's what Jesus asks. He doesn't ask for the, the specifics here. And I think he does that with us sometimes too. And I think sometimes we don't really quite get it. Like how many times do you think you're following Jesus and you just kind of come to a stopping point? You kind of come to a brick wall and you're trying to figure out what's next. In those moments, we have to ask ourselves, is what I'm facing, is this obstacle, is this a hurdle, or is this a barricade? We have to ask ourselves, what am I facing? A hurdle, that's something you have to figure out how to get over, get around, get under. You just have to get through it. Whether that's running a, a, a race on a track with hurdles, whether that's running, some of you guys have done like the Tough mutter kind of runs where you've got to go through different obstacles out on the course. You've got to navigate through those. A barricade, you don't pass those. Those say, no, you need to stop and turn around and go the other direction or find a new way. God puts both of those in our path. And I'll be very honest with you. There are many times I have come across a barricade and I have tried to beat that thing to death to get it where I could get through it. And what happens in the process? I wear myself out. I get frustrated with myself. I get frustrated with God. I'll get frustrated with the people around me. I'll start blaming everybody else because it's not working right. When in reality, God never wanted me to go through that anyway. He's telling me, no, listen, turn around and go the other way. On the flip side, how many times have I come up to a hurdle and I've assumed this this is a barricade? And God's like, I've given you the tools to get through it, but I'm like, no, this obviously isn't where God wants me to go. And I turn around and go in the other direction. What's the difference? How do we know? It's a simple but hard answer. You have to have faith and trust that God will help you discern which is which. And I can just tell you too, that's much easier for me to preach than it is for me to live out. It's much easier for me to tell you, trust in God, have faith. He'll help you find the difference between a barricade and a hurdle. But it's so much more difficult to actually live this out. But he's testing Philip. And Philip views this as a barricade because you can tell by his answer. He answers him, it's going to cost 200 denarii, half a year's wages. Probably eight or nine months wages, actually. Philip is answering this question just like we would. He's thinking practically. How many times have you uh, told either God or you've told somebody else, I can't do that because I don't have enough fill in the blank. I don't have enough money for that. We don't have enough people for that. I mean, as a a leader at the church here, we, we see this all the time. We don't have the budget for that. 
We don't have the manpower for that. Man, we, I'll just be honest, it's embarrassing to say we probably bring that up at least once a week. And, and it's, it's natural. Why? Because we think practically. We see what's in front of us. And folks, sometimes we just have to stop thinking so practically. And stop being human for just a moment and stop thinking practically and start trusting God for the miraculous. Because that's what Jesus is testing him with. He doesn't ask how much food or money do we have. He just says, how are you going to do this? One more little note here. I told you I wasn't going to dip too much into the other Gospels. But earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has sent the disciples out. He's given them power to perform miracles, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. Sent them out. And in Luke chapter 9, just before Luke gets into this particular story, the disciples come back from that trip. They come back from that mission of raising the sick, or raising the dead, healing the sick, performing miracles. They have just been performing the miracles on their own. And Philip thinks practically by telling Jesus, we don't have enough money to feed all of these people. Verse eight, it says, then another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. And he said, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Kind of put this in perspective for you. These aren't like big, huge loaves of bread here. Okay, a barley loaf was pretty small. And it was kind of considered the bread of the poor people or the common people because it was very cheap and easy to make. That doesn't mean that you know, wealthier people wouldn't eat it, but they had other options. This was kind of all... I'd maybe kind of look at it like it's just plain white sandwich bread. It's something that we probably all have in our pantry. And that's what this kid has. He has five of these. They're not very big. And two fish, those are little fish. Think sardines. Maybe tastier, maybe not. I don't know. I'm not a sardine fan. This kid basically has a Lunchable. Okay? Like, you've seen these. My kids eat these. This kid has a Lunchable without the cheese and cookies. Okay? The Lunchables have five crackers and five pieces of meat. The, 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 the little pieces of bread, that was the main source of this kid's sustenance. The, the, the two little fish, those were just a protein boost for him. That's what he has. That's what he comes to Jesus with. But Jesus, again, doesn't ask how much do we have. He just asks, what are we going to do? Verse 10, Jesus says, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. That's a key point there. Because it labels them men. You could conservatively say there were probably at least fifteen to 20,000 people in total. Because the 5,000 men, that's not counting their wives, their kids, any single women that came up. That's just counting the men. Conservatively, fifteen to 20,000 people with this kid's sack lunch. Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. I love this little verse here. And the reason I love it, like I say so often, is I love what Jesus doesn't say. Because what does he say? It says that Jesus took the loaves, he gave thanks, he blessed them, and he passed them out. And it doesn't really say, you know, how this happened. Like if he had this basket and he reached in and handed one, it's like the basket just never emptied. Or if he broke a piece off and it just like regenerated each time. I don't know. Like this would be fascinating and probably a little creepy to actually watch. But I want to see this. Like I would actually want to see this one happen. You know, like somebody's raised from the dead, you just kind of assume their body comes back up to life. But 
I really want to know because, you know, that's how my mind works, these weird little things. How did this happen? Did he pass it? And I don't know. I'm fascinated by this. But what does he not say here? In his blessing, Jesus does not ask God, hey, God, take this little bit and stretch it beyond what I can imagine. He just simply gives thanks for what he has. And he asks God to bless what he has. And he starts passing it out. And here's why. Jesus knows that right there physically, they don't have enough. And how many of you have ever been in that same spot where you know that right there physically, you don't have enough? And how often in those moments do you just simply thank God for what you have and ask him to bless it? Jesus gives thanks to God for one simple reason. He understands that in our insufficiency, God is our sufficiency. In our insufficiency, we should thank God for what we have. Because we don't need to ask God, God, give me more, because God is more. He's already more. We have to lean into that more. And that's where God will bless that. That's where God blesses it here in this particular story. And again, the food just gets passed. It says that they, they, they took as much as they wanted. Verse 12, it says, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel. A little bit of food wound up being more than enough. It was prophesied that the Messiah would miraculously provide for his people. And Jesus is doing that. And here's an interesting little note with how this story ends. In verse 14, it says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the, the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. <clears throat> again, He's just made a messianic declaration. And he knows what they're about to do. But as he says many times, my time has not yet come. So he sneaks away, gets out of there, sends his disciples on a boat across the lake. And we're going to read about that story next week. So I encourage you to come back for that. But what do we do with this story? What do we take from this? What do, what do we look at this miracle and say, how is this a sign for me still yet today? Kind of like we've been doing through this series, I'm going to make a couple of observations based on this text, and then we'll take that for how we can, can move forward. Here's our first observation. It's that the compassion of Jesus needs to be experienced to be understood. The compassion of Jesus needs to be experienced to be understood. Remember, John the Baptist has just been executed. Jesus is, I would just say, he's grieving. This is a friend of his. It's a, it's a relative of his. He needed some time. On top of that, if you go through the other Gospels, he's been on the go, just nonstop. He needed a moment. I mean, how many of us are there? We just need a moment, whether it's because we're just exhausted, we're stressed, maybe we're having a bad day, maybe you've had something that's causing you to grieve. Sometimes, I, I know I'm one of these, I need time alone. Even if it's just five, 10 minutes, sometimes I'll walk in my house and, and I'll just tell my wife, I just need a few minutes. And I'll go upstairs or I'll go downstairs. I'll just go somewhere by myself for a few minutes and then I'm okay. But I just need that time to kind of mentally and emotionally decompress. And I think that's where Jesus, remember at this point, he's fully human. 
He's fully God, yes, but he's fully human. And yet in that moment, the crowds come to him because the crowds are in need. They're not just coming because Jesus is a celebrity. They need something from him. And in Matthew's version, it says he saw them and had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. And, and he healed their lame. In his moment, he still reached out for them. Folks, understand that Jesus is in the same spot for you today. We can come to him when we are hurting. We can come to him when we are weak. He's our strength when we are not strong. He's our refuge in a time of a storm. We, we spent this last week again in what was considered to be by FEMA a hurricane-safe hotel. We were a refuge. We had a lot of people showing up at our hotel on Wednesday morning that were just seeking shelter, seeking a place to stay that was going to be on backup generators and would uh, still have internet access and have food available and running water and all of these things. That was a refuge in the time of a storm. That's what Jesus is for you. And he invites you to lean into him in the times that you need him. Matthew 11, he tells us to come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And how many of you just need rest? You're just like, man, Kurt, I am exhausted. My, my life is just running me ragged. I am toast right now. He will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is a place that we can go to. He's a safe place. He's a healthy place, a, a, a physically and emotionally redeeming place for us to go. But more than that, the compassion of Jesus teaches us to, to, to move beyond ourselves and our own comforts because that's what he did in this moment. Again, he just needed a moment to rest. And yet, what does he do? He puts his pastor hat right back on and he starts taking care of the people coming to him. He calls us to do the same. Now, I get it. We need times of Sabbath. We need times to, to unplug. We're called to do that, too. We're commanded to do that, too. Those are important, and we all need those moments. But don't ever let your comforts get in the way of what we're called to do. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 that if you have 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, you don't just say, well, I've still got 99, and you go on. No, you put your 99 on the side of a hill where they're safe, and you go find the one that's lost. We got t-shirts that say that. Some of you are wearing them today. We had these made a few months ago, and, and many of you across the church are wearing them. It says one is greater than 99. How many of you wear the shirt, but you don't live it out? How often do we as a church wear the shirt, but we don't live it out? No, that's what Jesus tells us to do. Leave your 99 safe and go find the one, because he says there'll be more celebration when you find the one than for the 99 who remain safe. That requires us to get out of our comfort zone and to share that compassion of Jesus with those around us, to help them realize that it's there. Because here's the truth of the matter. We cannot help other people understand and experience the compassion of Jesus if we don't lead them to, the, uh, to experience and understand the compassion of Jesus. We have to help bring them to him. So that's our first observation. It has to be experienced to be understood. Here's our second observation. Jesus invites you to participate in the ministry. He invites you to participate in blessing others. Again, he asks the disciples, specifically Philip here, what are you guys going to do about this? He doesn't tell them, hey, you know what? I'm Jesus. I got it. Just kick back. 
I got it. No, he asked him, what are you guys going to do? What are you going to do about this? Here's the reality, folks. Church is not a spectator sport. Okay, like if, if I go to Arrowhead and watch, watch a Chiefs game, they're probably not going to ask me to come down and help. Okay, now I was a backup kicker in high school. Right now they need a kicker. I might get a shot at that, but otherwise they're not asking me to come down and catch passes from Mahomes. Okay, like that's not going to happen. I am there as a spectator. That's not the same thing here. You aren't here to watch me preach or watch Ben sing or to watch us do church. It is not a spectator sport. Here's why I know this. Every single command Jesus gave the church was action-oriented and mission-focused. They are. We, we mentioned them last week. What does he tell you to do? Go make disciples. He tells you, be my witnesses. He tells you, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. None of those are set down and wait for people to show up to your church and to be nice to them when they get there. They are action-oriented, and they're mission-focused. Even if it's something that's an attitude type of mindset, like love your neighbor as yourself, there is still action based in that. I can't just say I love somebody and call it good. I have to live that out for them. I have to, 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 to change the way I approach them. That is loving my neighbor as myself. It's action-oriented. He never told us to sit idly by, inwardly focused. He called us to continue the work he started while he walked this earth. And here's the thing, folks. It doesn't matter what your role is. You may say, well, my role is a small role. I'm not on stage. I'm not preaching. I'm not singing. You guys, you're called. You're in ministry. I'm just, I'm just somebody who comes to church on a regular basis. That doesn't matter. There's no such thing as big roles or small roles. There's some that are more visible than others, yes, but there's no such thing as small or big roles. We all have roles. They're all important. It's like functioning uh, use of your body. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that just as a body, though one has many parts, all its parts form one body. So it is with Christ. The body is not made up of one part, but of many. Again, you, you, you get this. If you lose use of part of your body, it affects everything about you. If suddenly I can't use one of my hands, it changes everything about the way I go about life. Uh, the, the, when you get your entire body to work together, no matter if it's a big part or a, a smaller part, you realize they're all pretty important. That's something that we need to keep track of. Just look at Andrew here. Okay, Andrew is the one that brings this little boy to Jesus. Andrew is probably not one of the first disciples you'd think of. If I started asking you, let's, let's rattle off the name of the disciples. Well, <clears throat> you know the big three. You're going to rattle off, well, there's James and John and Peter. I know those guys. They're there with Jesus for everything. You'd probably give me Thomas. He's a doubting guy. Jesus had to you know, stick your finger in my nails or where the, where the nails were. Um, you know, we remember da Thomas for the wrong reasons. We remember Judas for the wrong reasons. You know, you're going to remember those names. You might remember Philip. I mean, we've talked about him already in this story, but he's talked about a lot in Acts. Andrew, you probably only remember because he's Peter's brother. That's probably it. But here's the thing about Andrew. This is pretty cool. He is only mentioned three times in the Gospels. And you know what he's doing in those three times? The first time, he introduces his brother to Jesus. The second time, he introduces this little boy to Jesus. In John 12, he introduces some people at the temple to Jesus. He's three for three. He's batting a thousand. All Andrew does is introduce people to Jesus. 
Man, I, I got to be honest with you. Once upon a time, I wanted to be well-known. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be on, on ESPN doing football games or baseball games. I wanted people to know who I was. And I'll be honest, even when I got into ministry, I wanted to be one of those that if I went to a conference, everybody knew who I was. Man, at the end of the day, when my day on this earth is over with, how great would it be if somebody goes, hey, I remember Kurt. He introduced people to Jesus. That's all they remember from me. Like, that's on my tombstone. This is Kurt. He introduced people to Jesus. Like, maybe one of these days, if I get to preach some of your funerals, I said, hey, here, here's so-and-so. They led people to Jesus. What better way to say about somebody's life than they lived out what Jesus told us to do? They lived out the mission by simply introducing people to Jesus. Church is not a spectator sport. It's a participant sport. And you're invited and called to be a part of that. Here's our third observation. This might be the most obvious, and it might be the most important. There is nothing that is too big for Jesus. Gee, I've said this before. It's something I say a lot. Whatever you think of Jesus, you're underestimating him. Whatever your expectations are of Jesus, he is bigger than those. We had a series a few months ago called Name Dropper, and one of the names we talked about was El Shaddai, which is mentioned in Genesis 17, the God of power, the God of just strength. Like he is a God that is so far beyond what we think he can do, and yet what do we do too often? We limit him. And I would ask you, if you want, you can even write this down on your notes. How do you limit Jesus? How do you limit God in your life? Because I think that we all do this at times. Uh, just for example, one of the ways that I do this is, it's funny because I feel like this is a spiritual gift, but when I'm really honest with myself, it's not, is I know exactly what I can and can't do. Like, like I know the gifts God has given me and I know what he has not given me. I know where he has not gifted me where I need to ask somebody else to come in and, and do something. And the more I'm around my team, the more I'm around the ministry team here, I start knowing what they can and can't do. That's valuable, yes, but is, in reality, is that really me living out faith or is that just me being very observant? <laughs> Maybe it's both, I don't know. But what I, what I realize when I'm very honest with myself about that is that my, my view of Jesus only goes as far as I can see. Not to say I've got blinders on, but it's just, it's limited. Why? Because I'm limited. I've got limitations just like you do. I mess up just like you do. I let people down just like you do. And I have to, to realize that it goes beyond what I can see. Hebrews tells us that faith is trusting what you can't see. Trusting what's beyond what you can see. And that's just faith. That's not even talking about God. That's not even talking about Jesus as a whole. That's just talking about what we can see. And the reality of that hit me this week in a way it hasn't hit me in a long time. Again, I told you, we spent this week in, in Florida. And um, we were going to the conference that was supposed to be Tuesday through, through Thursday. And around Wednesday afternoon, what's being called one of the five strongest hurricanes to ever make landfall in Florida, made landfall in Florida. This was Fort Myers as it hit. Um, and, and it, it just got me because, again, we were safe. You know, we, were, we weren't fearing the storm itself. We, we knew that we were going to be safe. And I knew there were a lot of people who weren't. 
And in the days since the storm, you know, we've started realizing of some people that we know personally that weren't so lucky. Uh, I've got a friend named Charlie. We actually prayed for Charlie last year, about almost a year ago exactly. Uh, you may remember he was nearly dying from COVID, had a newborn he hadn't even seen yet. Charlie's dad pastors a church in Port Charlotte, right there by Fort Myers. They took refuge in their church, and when they came out, they were unscathed. They didn't have a scratch on their body, but the church is gone. And they're worshiping somewhere today, I don't know where. But their building is likely gone. Uh, Jennifer's got a friend named Liz she went to college with. Lives in Punta Gorda. Again, right dead center of where this thing hit. In fact, if you were watching the Weather Channel Wednesday like we were, that's where Jim Cantor was, standing on the road, getting blown off his feet multiple times. Winds of about 130 miles an hour. Uh, she got inland, came back home, and lost everything. Her home's gone. I've got some former students that also live in Punta Gorda. He's a fishing guide. He actually spent the entire summer in Alaska guiding fishing trips up there. He just got home last week. When this thing rolled in, they loaded up everything in their truck that they considered to be irreplaceable, as much as they could fit, and they drove 70 miles away. They set everything up in their house on blocks and chairs. She said their house, Jordan told me their house sits at four feet elevation. They were expecting a 12-foot storm surge. They got home. Their house wasn't touched. Not a drop of water in their house, not a shingle off their house. Their yard's torn up, yes, but their house is good. She said, I only believe this happened because of prayer. But she said that we're dealing now with the fallout because everybody else on our street wasn't so lucky and now we're helping them dig out. We're helping them figure things out. And she said, not only that, we have hardly any cell phone service. If you can even get gas at a pump, it takes forever to get there. Everything's down, power's still out. And that's what they're dealing with. And here we were, safe from the storm, but sitting there wondering, how in the world are we going to get home? How are we going to get back? And we weren't really scared. You know, I mean, I, I, I knew we were safe where we were at. We had a couple of kids at home terrified. Mom and dad are in a hurricane. What's going to happen? We had other stuff, and we, we had to get here. You know, Brad's out of town. We had, had emergency, or not emergency, but backup plans in place here. But we just need to get back. How are we going to do this? And, and starting Tuesday, our, our original flight was supposed to come home Thursday evening, get back late Thursday night. Starting Tuesday, I, the, the storm was supposed to hit Thursday, so I moved our flights up to Wednesday. Then it's very obvious, very quick, that's not going to happen. Those got canceled by late Tuesday night. By then, it's too late to get out on Tuesday night. We tried everything we could possibly try Wednesday morning. Miami Airport was, was canceling flights. Jacksonville was canceling flights. Tampa was canceling flights. Orlando was shut down. I called about renting a car. I couldn't get any cars to go anywhere outside of airports that were shut down. I told Jennifer, I said, we're here. We're going to ride this out. And over the next two days... Not exaggerating, probably eight or nine times we had flights canceled and had to reschedule. And I was on the phone with United, and they were phenomenal to work with during all this, but I mean, just on the phone constantly. And I just got to be very honest with you, because by about the seventh cancellation, my stress level was up, my wife's was up, we'd been in a hotel room together for two days, we were starting to chip at each other. I'm sure you can imagine. And sometime Wednesday, it hit me. Sometime late Wednesday, it hit me. I'm sitting here in the middle of a storm, and I can't figure out what to do. 
have I even bothered to ask the one person who with a simple word stopped a storm? I'm sitting here stuck because the roads are flooded. Have I even bothered, have I even tried to just ask the person who walked on top of water to help us out of here? I asked everybody else to pray. I hadn't even done it myself. Why? Because I'm trying to take care of the situation. I'm thinking in the practical. I'm not thinking in the miraculous. I'm sitting here trying to create my own way, and I haven't even stopped and asked my creator, my Messiah, who's a way maker, to make one for us. And again, we were stuck in a pretty nice hotel. (laughs) There are worse places to ride out a storm. But with everything that we were looking at, it was just the question, have I even bothered to remind myself that God is still the God of the miraculous? Have I even stopped to remind myself that he can do so much more than I can possibly think of? That he is capable with just a blink or a snap of his fingers to do more than I could ever, ever imagine. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or all we can imagine. You ever, I mean, do you just like blast that verse where you can see it all the time? I can imagine a lot. I can ask for a lot. And yet Paul says he is able to do, we can't even measure how much more he can do than that. To him be all power and glory in Jesus. In that moment, when I'm just trying to figure out a way, it didn't even click in my head, despite a whole day of hearing phenomenal pastors and phenomenal leaders just drill into us, let your faith be bigger than your fear. And he's talking about us as, as leaders in the church, yes. But in that moment, I wasn't walking as a Christian very well. Let your faith be bigger than your fear. Remember who your God is and don't make the mistake of putting your human limitations on him because we do that every day. We need to remember to ask God to bless what we have in that moment and thank him for what we have in that moment and trust him. I can just tell you, I wasn't doing that. And I'll be honest, I probably won't do that tomorrow (laughs) or the next day or the next day or the next day. Ben, our, our worship pastor, likes to always say, anytime we get together to pray, you know what we need to do? We need to pray some God-sized prayers. He's like, yeah, we always pray for Aunt Judy's leg. I don't know who his Aunt Judy is, but we always, he always mentions his Aunt Judy. Yeah, we can pray for Aunt Judy's leg, but sometimes we need to pray God-sized prayers. What's that? It's praying that God would do the things that we can't even imagine, the things that we can't even see, because he's still the God of the miraculous. He's still the God that is beyond any power we can possibly fathom. Here's kind of a takeaway for you today, and I'll be honest, I wrote this takeaway, and then as as the weekend progressed, I'm like, man, I don't really like this takeaway. I would have rewritten it. But I'm gonna go ahead and give it to you. Sometime this week, ask God to use you in a way that you can't even imagine as possible. Maybe that's stepping out in faith in ministry. Maybe that's reaching your neighbor. 
Maybe that's just introducing somebody to Jesus. Maybe you don't even think you can do that. Maybe it's different. Maybe today you're facing a wall and you don't know if it's a hurdle or a barricade. You're you're staring at at a situation and you say, Kurt, I don't know how I'm going to survive this week. I don't have enough money to survive this week. Or I don't have enough something to get through. I've got a project. I don't have enough time to, to get this done. I don't have enough people around me to help get this done. Maybe you're facing that right now and you have been stressing yourself out trying and trying to figure it out. Maybe it's, it's just a situation with your family, with your kids, with your parents, with your siblings, and you cannot figure out how to get through it. Can I just encourage you to do one thing? Take a breath. Look at what you have. Ask God to bless it. And remember who he is. He's the way maker. He's the miracle worker. He's our promise keeper. He's our light in the darkness. We're going to wrap this up a little different today. I've asked the band to come out. And they're going to lead us in a closing prayer through song. I'm going to invite you to stand. You can, you can join us and stand if you want to. You can get on your knees and your seat if you want to. You can get on your face before God if you want to. But I just want to encourage you in these next few moments. Whatever you're facing, whatever it is, you remember who our God is.